like Barry said, Tim Rice is my name. It's a great privilege for me to be here because it really is strange because there are a lot of you I do know, but most of you I don't. And uh, that's really part of the goal. And the whole idea in church planting is that you're going to send a, a part of a church out to start a whole new church and that they're going to extend a reach into a part of your city or your region that the, the other church wasn't ever going to be able to accomplish. It's this idea of giving your faith away, giving away your friends uh, in a way that seems almost scary and terrifying at moments, but other times it's just a thrill. And when I look out and see so many of you that I've never met before, that's, it, it just encourages us to know that you're, you're getting your job done. And, uh, and it's a privilege to be able to be here today with you. Um, this is, I want you to know that this is a little bit mercenary uh, because I'm here to cover Drew today because he's going to cover me in April. So it's, it's payback. I just get to go first. Uh, but I think he's got the better deal. Uh, he is away with his wife, and they're uh, you know, resting, and they're getting some time to recover and be refreshed. In April, I'll be teaching at a women's retreat. Uh, I think he got the better straw. Uh, the, the teaching this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, or if, is it on the screen? Yes, it is. Um, and then I'm going to do a, a, a little bit of a setup for you to, to understand historically the passage, because if you don't understand the background historically, there's, good, there's some things in this passage that can slip by you. Uh, and so, because I know we're going to be teaching this book the whole spring, it, hopefully it'll be some, some perspective historically that'll help you throughout the whole series. Uh, if, if not, it, it's still only it will help you give some insight into this morning, I hope. So this is God's Word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, referring to Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who was for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let me see if I can give you this historical perspective. Let's say three or four minutes. Okay, history lesson. Those of you who like the History Channel, maybe you'll respond to this a little more. Those of you who don't, try to stay awake, please. Just give me three minutes. Get into this historical framework. If you know anything about the Bible at the time of Jesus' teaching, the Romans occupied Palestine. So an enemy-occupying force, an enemy-occupying country, was really powerfully governing the area. So it's like a system that you've seen the world over. There's one people from another place that really governs and exerts power, but they're not native to that country, very much the way the American presence would be in Iraq. 
I mean, we're the, the strongest force there, the strongest force militarily, but there's a government that was local and there's trying to be this handoff. And that's not the way the Romans did it. The, governments, the, the Roman government ran everything as an extension of Rome. The Jews hated that. If you can remember some of the, the, the disciples even of Jesus, there's one called Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a political movement within the Jews that wanted to rise up militarily and fight the Romans, hopefully defeat the Romans, and kick them out. You can remember at the time of, of Christ coming into his ministry as an adult that, that there was a lot of expectation. Is he the Christ? Is he the Christ? You know, which means the Greek word for Messiah. And the expectation of the Jews for Messiah was it was going to be this king like David. Finally, David's heir was going to come back. And, and what was the expectation? He's going to defeat our enemies. Now, the, the problem with that expectation was that expectation was almost exclusively political. The hope was, if we can just get rid of the Romans, everything will be great. Now, if you can feel that, that expectation, that yearning, that idea, we we know what's wrong, we know the solution, if we could just get this, everything would be great. And then what did Jesus do about all of those expectations? It says in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 that they wanted to force him to be king, and he would have nothing to do with it. You see places where Jesus tells people, he heals them, and he says, you know, you're the Christ. He says, don't tell anybody that. And it's not that he's saying, I'm not the Christ. What he's saying is, no, that word is so twisted. That word Christ, Messiah, is so distorted in the public expectation. I don't want you telling people that because they'll misunderstand why I'm here. If you can say it another way by analogy, if you are in a car wreck, and let's say two things happen to you. You smash your face on the dashboard and you break your nose. Oh, and your heart stops. The EMTs arrive there. What are they working on? Are they going to work on your nose or are they going to work on your heart? And Jesus did not come to attend to the cosmetics of the Jewish political problem. Jesus came to address the heart. Your heart was stopped. I don't care about your nose for now. I'm here to address your heart. And to address the heart, Jesus did not come to kick the Romans out. Jesus came to be killed. Because in order to save you, and in order to save me from our heart condition, Jesus had to be put to death. He had to die a traitor's death. He had to die the the death you and I deserve. And that's why Jesus came. It wasn't to just correct a cosmetic political scenario. Run forward in time. So Jesus is on the scene. So let's say if if the Western calendar is off by three years and people argue over that, was Jesus really born in A.D. or 3 B.C.? And let's just say for for math, we're going to keep it around on the standard calendar. So around 33, Jesus is dead, crucified, raised, and then ascends to heaven and he's gone. The Jewish political system keeps going. And by 66, we know historically in 66 AD, the zealots had gotten enough of a rising, and the Romans, like American times, rising and falling ways, like American government and American military scenarios. There's times when we're stronger, there's times when we're weaker, and the Roman government at that time was a little bit more relaxed, and the deployment of the battalions was a little bit smaller. The zealots saw their moment, they rose up in 66, and they actually defeated the Roman garrison. The Romans were gone. 
They defeated, either drove them out or killed them. And now, finally, for the zealots, their dream had come true. 66 AD, it was as if heaven on earth had arrived. We're free of the Romans. And they had about two years of glory. Maybe 18 months. And then this is what happened. We know one thing that is very strong from early church history is that there was a tradition within the early church that a vision had been given to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. See, at that time, the church was probably just one, like a subset, almost like a denomination of Judaism, are these Jews who continue to practice the Jewish rituals, but they also draw strength and gather around Jesus. And a lot of the Jews, as long as they observed those rituals, would kind of tolerate them. Yeah, you're a little odd and weird, but we still count you as Jews. But this vision is given to the Jewish leaders of the church in there in Jerusalem in 68. And in that year, the vision was, get out. Leave Jerusalem now. Now, it fits. If you go back in Matthew 24 in Jesus' teaching... Jesus had this episode where he says, when he's walking in the temple courts and the disciples say to him, man, this place is amazing. Look at the glory of this temple. And he says, there's going to come a time when not one stone is going to be left on another. And they're like, when's that going to happen? And he says, cryptically, all these things are going to happen first, and like the birth pangs that come before the delivery and all this turmoil. And then there's going to be the final episode of good and evil and the final second coming. But when this temple has come, the time has come, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, don't even go back for your coat. Get out. And how hard it will be for mothers nursing in those times. That is what Jesus had taught in Matthew 24. Now, the vision to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in 68, whether that's really accurate or not, this is what we know. Jewish Christians did leave. Now, this is where I want to try to feel this a setup for this book. Imagine if we're all Jewish, and imagine if we're all Jewish Christians, and we have our family members, and not all of our family members believe in Jesus, probably like all of our family members here don't necessarily believe in Jesus. But here we are connected, and we're in the capital city, and it's glorious because the Romans are gone, but there's rumblings. There's rumblings all the way out to Lebanon and all the way out to Syria that the Romans are on the march. And here we have this idea, and we receive this command from Jesus, and we want to be loyal to him, and Jesus says, leave. Leave Jerusalem now. And your family says, what? You're going to leave now? I mean, this is the time of glory. I mean, and, and if the Romans are coming, you're, I mean, you're going to leave us now? I mean, are you a Jew or not? This is Jerusalem. Can you see that pressure? Can you feel that pressure? And if that's the context of when this book was written, we don't know who wrote it, but the time frame is pretty solid. If that's the context of what was happening, can you see the pressure and how many times in this book he's going to say, look, Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus is better than Moses because Moses was just a creature. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the high priest because he is our priest. Jesus is better. And if God is going to cause this system of human glory to be completely crushed, what did you really lose anyway? Because you have Jesus. That's this context. And so now, notice in that historical framework, we have this teaching about humiliation because what was so troubling 
but it's so problematic, and I think it's hard for us in our society too. How do you match together these ex- this expectancy of this great Messiah with all this humiliation? Because after all, I mean, Jesus came, and He didn't do one thing about the Romans. I mean, Jesus came, and He didn't win, He lost. I mean, after all, He didn't, he didn't defeat and kill anybody, He got killed. And we don't see him raised, and we don't see him. You talk about this resurrection stuff. I haven't seen him. And can you see the problem that we hear? We talk about this God, this glory, and yet it's coupled with this humiliation. And that was hard then, and it's hard now. So understanding that the way of Jesus is to come, and the reason that Jesus comes with humiliation is because that's where you are. That's where I was. If I'm in a position of being humiliated, and my God is coming to my rescue, this is the law of the rescue. The the one in, in power has to go where the one in danger is. You hear that? The law of the rescue is, whoever's coming to be the Savior has to go where the person in peril is. If I'm in a burning building, you're a fireman, where do you have to go? You've got to go in. If I'm held hostage by enemy-occupied forces, I mean, you're the special forces, and you're coming to get me out, where do you got to go? You have to go into enemy-occupied territory. If I'm drowning and I bubbled my way right to the bottom of the pool and you're the lifeguard, where do you have to go? You have to go in. And you and I are covered in the filth of our sin and guilt. Where does the God of heaven who is coming to our rescue have to go? He has to go into the very jaws of death and hell. You got it? So when that's set up, we understand then what I want to try to walk you through this morning in this passage are just these simple steps. God's glory through humiliation and your glory through humiliation. The ways we try to, in a sense, avoid that are the ways we can drift away from that. But then also it matters who is the one whose work it is. It matters who is at work. We're going to see why it matters that it's Jesus' work, it's not your work. It's not my work. It's the work of God in Christ, okay? Let's start with this concept of glory through humiliation. So we see this starting here, and we're going to literally kind of like an Oreo, the first couple of verses, the last couple of verses... Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the author talking about? He's comparing the Old Testament and what had given, the law that had been given through Moses and then now the coming of Christ and the gospel. The Old Testament. Why does he refer to angels? Because the understanding of the giving of the law to Moses was that it was often through the angel of the Lord. So in the Jewish sensibility, the Jewish concepts, how had the law been given? The law had been given by the angel of the Lord to whom had it been given to Moses. Now whatever this law was, it was a revelation of God's holiness. It was a revelation of God's commands. It was a revelation of His design. It was a revelation of His own person. It was glorious. When you think about angels, we've just come off the Christmas season. These angels appear To shepherds, these angels appear to Mary, angels to Joseph, angels are appearing. How do they always start with their greeting? What's one of the first things they say? Don't be afraid. Why do they have to say that? Because they're so freaking scary. 
I love it in the Jesus Storybook Bible that they call the angels great warriors of light. I mean, you see these angels and you're like, you're terrified because they are so glorious. And now God comes in Christ. And what does He look like? Just another baby. Now, you might look at your baby and think, oh, this baby's glorious. That's because it's yours. But just another baby. And is it really that glorious? Not really. And they're a mess. And they cry. And they keep you awake. And they intrude. Those of you who are not yet parents... I just want to encourage you, yes, they're worth having. Please have your babies after you get married. Please have your babies, but be ready. It's going to wreck your calendar, okay? They intrude. They're not glorious. And yet one more coming, one more baby, and yet this one we believe is God. And that is glorious. But by appearances, look at the end of the verses. Pick up in verse 7. You made him, the Son of Man, a little lower than the angels. Not a great warrior of light. Putting everything in subjection to his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see that. In other words, it doesn't look like it's glorious when it's attached to Jesus. It doesn't look like he's ruling everything. And so that appearance... Notice what we have. We have the glory of the Old Testament. We have the glory associated with the giving of the law. And then there's just meek, mild Jesus. And it can seem like, wait a minute, the law, wasn't the law better? And then the author of Hebrews is trying to remind him, oh, no, no, be careful. Be careful. Because here's what our world does. I want you to think like on a spectrum from hot to cold. You know, from like Florida is supposed to be hot and Michigan right now is really cold. You know, but it's supposed to be. I'm freezing right now. Okay, but if you think through the spectrum of from really light to really dark, on a spectrum, where do you, if glory is here, where's humiliation? The absolute opposite end of the spectrum, right? That's what our world does. Our world puts at odds glory and humiliation. But I want you to see that if you'd swing it and view it like a rifle scope, and you want to look right down the scope, and you want to look at glory, Jesus says, yeah, and the eyepiece is called humiliation. You will not see glory until you humble yourself. That is the way of the Lord that is not like the way of this world. And God, in Christ, coming to save you, and if you've got your Bibles, because we didn't print it, we didn't go all the way into verse 10, look at verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 2. And for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. What is his goal? Why did Jesus come? Is to bring you to glory. That's his goal. That he should make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. Or that he would make the founder of salvation ready and prepared through suffering. Understand this, we want to put glory and humiliation at opposites. And Jesus swings that thing and says, you want to see glory? You have to go through humiliation. It works like filtration. I don't know if you know how filters work. 
It's everything from what do you do in your colander when you're boiling pasta. You have this grid, this bowl-like thing. It's got holes in it, right? Because you can dump your, your, your big pot of spaghetti into the colander. And the, the noodles are kept and the water flows through. That's a filter. A filter always kind of works on a law from letting the smaller thing pass through and screening out what is bigger. Okay, go down to your coffee filter. The coffee filter will let something flow through, liquid, something that the water has absorbed the oils of your coffee grains, but the grounds themselves are caught by the filter. You realize you run right down into your body. It's your body level, the cell level of your body. There's certain filtration dynamics where water and oxygen can pass through and other things are just too big. It's always the law of the way a filtration works is something small is let through, something big is caught and kept out. And there is God's system set up. There is glory for you, but you've got to get small. If you want to be big, you're not going to experience God's glory. You want to be egotistical, and you want to be wealthy, and you want to be powerful, and you want to be famous, and you want to be pretty, and you want to be approved of by all men, and you want to be big, you want to matter, you're never going to experience God's glory. God himself didn't come that way. God himself came in Christ, humble. We just read it in our assurance of pardon. Though equality with God is who he is. He didn't cling. He didn't grasp. He didn't clutch onto that. He let that go. In order to go where you and I are, we are humiliated in our sin and guilt. And to love you and to love me, Jesus comes small. And in that pursuit and in that coming, that's just the confusion. And the Jews of the time of the, of the Hebrews author's writing, they're thinking, we want to be big in this world. We want to be big again. We were big under David. It's a thousand years later. We want to be big again. And we've kicked those nasty Romans out and proved that we're big. And Jesus is there reminding them, say, yeah, you want to know your problem? You want a kingdom on earth, but you don't want the king. You want glory. You might even call it God's glory. You want glory on this earth, but you don't want the God of glory. Imagine how twisted and perverse it is. They're claiming to have the kingdom of God on earth in 66 AD, and they had killed the king of heaven. They want his kingdom. They don't want him. Guess what you and I do? Exactly the same thing. If you want to understand, if you're not a Christian... You're trying to understand what do Christians believe. This is what we believe. What you've done, what I've done, what all of us have done. We've tried to have our own kingdom and be rid of him. We want glory. We don't want the God of glory. Because deep down you know the way he has provided for you to have that glory is you have to humble yourself. Luke chapter 14. Verse 33, one of my favorite passages because I have to preach it to myself all the time. And Jesus said, whoever would come after me to be my disciple must renounce all that he has. Get small. You want to be with me? You've got to let go of everything else. I am holy. I'm incomparable. I'm irreplaceable. You can't have me and your little kingdom. You can't have me in the beauty of the world. You can't have me in the riches of the world. You can't have me in the powers of this world. You've got to pick. You have me or that, but you pick that and you're going to end up like Jerusalem. Guess what happens in the epilogue? 66, Titus comes. Titus brings 
like probably eight, some historians argue, eight to 12 times the number of what the original garrison was in Jerusalem that the zealots defeated. He brings hundreds of thousands of Roman troops, far bigger force than had ever been deployed in that time period for any other Roman military campaign. They come back on a mission. We're going to not just defeat Jerusalem, we're going to obliterate it. By the time the siege was enacted in 68, Titus offered one proposal. You can come out now and surrender in terms of peace and we'll let you live. If you fight and you resist, we'll kill you all. And the estimations are 1 million to 1.2 million Jews were slaughtered. Starved into existence, starved into death, or militarily defeated into death. And by the end of the siege, two years of having their food and water cut off, the Jews inside the walls of Jerusalem were eating their own children. You want to talk about humiliation? Go ahead. Exert your kingdom. Grab your moment of glory. Go ahead and try to do it and unseat the living God and see what he does to you. You'll have your glory, and then you'll eat what you think it is to try to keep yourself alive, and you'll still perish. He is God. He is the Lord, King, rule over existence, and you cannot think that you can defy him and it has no consequence. The greatest tragedy that we've ever committed is that we've defied him. In our quest for glory, eschewing anything humiliating, here we have the spectrum. We think it's all over, happening over here. I have to have glory. I can't have, abide anything humiliating. And you realize, that wait a minute, you pursue your glory without him and it's all going to be waste. So what is the warning that the author of Hebrews is saying? It's a simple concept. He says, don't drift. Don't drift. Now, I don't know if any of you are, are comfortable at sea. But those of you who have familiarity and you, you've got boats and you go out in the Gulf or maybe out on the Atlantic and you know what it's like to be out at sea, there's a, there's a fundamental you know, capacity to not be aware that you're moving. It's amazing. It's a problem of one of two things, or both, wind or currents. You get out at sea, and you get off the coast. You don't even have to be off the coast very far. And you get in a situation where you think, this is where I want to fish, or this is where I want to dive. And what you may not see, what you may not perceive by your eye, is you're moving. The only frame of reference you have to tell if you are moving, and this is a law my father taught me. My father was a sailor in World War II. When getting out, and we used to go when I was a child to the coast of outer, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, Cape Hatteras, from age 7 to age 21, and we were out on the water. And one of the first lessons my dad taught me was keep your eye on a fixed point on land. You have to spot a lighthouse, you have to spot a Loran Tower, you have to spot something big enough that you can see it so you can tell if you're moving. Because you might be planning up and setting up to fish, but if the current is moving you, you might have to ch- scrap your plans to make sure you make it back to land that day. The winds can push you. It's amazing. I'm sure most of you, if you haven't done this in a boat, you've done it when you're out in the surf. Have you ever been over in the Atlantic coast? Maybe you've been on to New, New Smyrna or Daytona or Cocoa Beach, and you're out in the waves and you're playing, and you're thinking, I'm going to surf, I'm going to body surf, I'm going to you know, boogie board, I'm out there in the water, and suddenly I look up and I'm like, wait a minute, that's not my condo. 
And you realize, wait a minute, oh, my hotel's down. How did my hotel get down there? Because you, the currents were moving you. And you didn't even know it. Do you know what it takes to drift? No effort at all. Do you know what it takes to not drift? Extensive effort or an anchor. Look at what he says. Look at the warning he says. So pick up again. Go back to just verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift. Stick your finger there. Go to Hebrews 6. And look at verse 19 in chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone. The forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever. You see, the warning is that you not, you not pay attention. You see, there's that, there's that problem we have is that we can think, Oh, I'm fine. I don't have a problem. I have a nice life. I have a nice job. I have a nice wife. I have a nice husband. I have nice kids. Everything's fine. But remember, what does it take to drift? Do nothing. Notice it fits with what happens in the the statement he says right after that. If we neglect in verse 3. Because neglect is the same kind of problem. It's a do-nothing problem. It's a do-nothing crime. To drift, to neglect, requires you to be completely passive. Or to be unanchored. But notice what he's calling us back to is this idea. Aren't you aware of the offer, the hope, the solidness that is yours in Christ? Nowadays it makes sense. Okay, remember, we're part of that that Jewish group that is leaving Jerusalem. And imagine all your family members are saying, you're leaving now? I mean, you're going to turn your back now? No, no, come back to the temple. Come back to the high priest. Come back to the law. And know what you're understanding. No, no, well, look what Christ had promised. Christ was promising something the law could never give you. The law told you that you're sinful. The law forecasts that you needed to be atoned for. The law couldn't atone. The high priest could remind you that God was holy and that you were a sinner and that you needed atonement, but the high priest couldn't give you final atonement. The temple was the place that was the symbol that the holy God has made a way for sinful people to be reconciled to Him. But that cold stone building couldn't provide that reconciliation. Only the God of the temple, only the God of the priest, the giver of the law, could atone. And that's what Jesus had come to do. Jesus is the one who's providing this anchor. Jesus is this anchor. He is this solid. He is this hope that none of those things could ever give you. He is the solid, fixed reference point. He's the place at which you can look at and tell, have I drifted? I mean, folks, there's everything around you. In this society, it's so affluent. Our society is so crazy with affluence. And there are going to be so many places where you're going to think, I'm fine. And you're going to think, I don't have a problem. And you drift. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says, out of 100 people who will, who, who will leave the faith, he said, have one or two of them been reasoned away from the faith by some serious argument while 99 just quietly, passively drifted away? Because 
when your job gets you a check and you have a house and you have someone who's still showing up every day to live with you as a husband or a wife and you have kids who are, they're not in jail. I mean, isn't it easy to look on those circumstances and think, oh, we're fine. And yet you can forget. No, the scriptures are telling you, you know, you have cancer in your soul. You know, you have a will in your heart to live without God. You know, you have a capacity to completely unseat your maker. That even these things, just like the, the Jews wanted a kingdom without the king. They wanted the glory without the God of glory. And you and I can do that too. And if you don't wake up today, and if you don't wake up today to the so- sober realization, I have in me everything in my heart of what the Jews of the first century had in them. With the kingdom they wanted, I can do that too. I can turn my back on God. And I can reject God humbled in Christ in order to have something so gloriously appealing for a season. Unaware that it can flip on me and I can be besieged and I can be pressed to eat my young. What changes that? What conquers this heart of yours, this heart of mine? Okay, let's look at Jesus, okay? It matters not just the work that's done, it matters who's doing it. Can I say that again? It matters not just the, the work that is done, it matters who's doing it. Let's see if we can make, set up a comparison. Now, many of you know David Dodd, he's not here today, but let's say that we have this opportunity that somebody diagnoses you've got a heart valve problem. And we put him in scrubs, and you put me in scrubs. You give him a knife, you give me a knife. I can spell heart surgery. I've seen a few Discover Network documentaries. I kind of have an idea. I, I can even tell you what the, the, where the valves are named and where they are. Do you care who's doing the surgery? Hmm. It does matter who does the work, doesn't it? How about in your companies? Does it matter to you who does the work? It's not just the work that's done. It matters who's doing it. Some of you work in businesses where licensing matters greatly. And what, matter, what happens if somebody unlicensed in your company who's thinking, oh, well, I know how this works. Oh, I'll go ahead and sign the papers. But they're not licensed. What would a judge rule in a case like that? <laughs> it, does, it is not just the work that gets done. It matters greatly who's doing the work. And then you see this statement here, the Son of Man. The heart of this passage is, This message was declared to us first by the Lord. It was attested. Miracles, signs, wonders. It's also Jesus, but it's also his apostles. But we see this message has been given to us, and we see this one. The Son of Man. Now we get the problem of his humiliation. Now, but you made him for a little while, lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection, but then move on down Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. The gospel is really this simple. You have a problem you can't solve. You have a problem, however, he can. You and I have guilt, and you and I can't remove it. 
That's a, it's as problematic as you ever saw. It's a tragic movie. It's a very well-made movie. It is not a movie to watch after you've had dinner. Schindler's List. But in Schindler's List, there's a famous scene where the arch villain, the commander of the concentration camp, is troubled in his conscience over how many people he's killing. And he's talking to Schindler. And Schindler is showing mercy and showing grace. And he talks about forgiveness. And you have the commandant look in his own mirror and say to himself, I forgive you. I forgive you. He actually almost gets lightened up in his conscience by the idea of hearing the words. And he says it again and he repeats it again. And he's looking at his own reflection saying, I forgive you. And he almost looks hopeful. And then it washes over him that he can't do that. And he rushes out, grabs his rifle, and goes and kills more Jews. You see, there's a problem with forgiveness. Only the offended party can forgive. You can't forgive yourself. And I can't forgive myself. And only the God that you and I have defied can forgive us. And only the king that you've tried to unseat can rectify your rebellion. Only he can do this. This is work you and I can't do. The miracle of Christianity is that God did it. The miracle of this hope is that God himself, the only one who can forgive you, is nonetheless willing to. But in order to do it, he had to taste death. Unthinkable. The unkillable God becomes killable. The holy God becomes polluted. The absolutely pure, spotless God is going to be covered in filth. My son went with our youth group a few years ago to Tijuana. And as they went on a mission trip to Tijuana, they noticed that this place where they were in these abject slums, there was this gully that every now and then would flow like a river. And they noticed that it did stink and everything around there smelled bad, but they didn't really pay attention to it, but they noticed that sometimes this river flowed and other times it didn't. About two, three days in, they learned that what that river was was the release of the city's sewage. The kids dubbed it the Pooh River. Now i got a question for you. What, the same thing that arose in the minds of our kids. They would play soccer. They were doing kids' ministry. They were working out with, you know, helping lots of kids in this village. And they would notice the soccer ball get kick, gets kicked in that gully. And most of the Americans are like, ah! And one of the local kids would just run right into the gully, grab the soccer ball, and bring it right back out. Completely mindless, completely unaware, no, no thoughts of hygiene or anything like that. They're living in the world they know. But our kids and our youth leader thought, you know what? What would happen? if one of those kids was in that gully when the water was released. Because it was like a flash flood. Now let me ask you. Your kid's in that gully. Your very flesh and blood. Your child is in that gully and the water's released. Would you jump in? I bet you wouldn't hesitate because you love your kids. There's your child in sewage. Drowning. And if you love your kid enough that you would jump in, how much more your Father in Heaven? To see you and I wallowing in the sewage of our own sin and defiance. And loving us, where would He go? What, what has He done? You see, you, you despise humiliation. 
Look at the humiliation your God and Savior chose because that's where you were. And he loves you. And loving you, he dived right in. Plunging into it. Yes, I'll go in there because I love you because that's what the work requires to save you. I'll do it. Can you see how this completely overturns our world sensibility about appearances? What does our God think of appearances in worldly sense? Sweeps them aside. Because the mission of love, the mission to save, the mission to redeem, the work and the person who must do the work, they dictate the plan. I know what I must do. And then can you see how our love of appearances now makes no sense? We get so caught up over reputation. We get so caught up over what will they think. We get so caught up over earthly appearances. I mean, please, look at the glory of your holy God covered in sewage to save you. And consider now, what would the mission call me to do? Because of love. In other words, what would the mission require of me? And what would I be glad to do? Because look what he did to save me. Does that make sense? Can you see, it's, it's not just the work that's done, but the person who's doing it. Because he's the only one who can do this work. But now, crowned, glory, bringing many sons to glory. Now can you see why the, the author of Hebrews and why we're going to be looking at this whole spring will be saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to those promises when you have the reality. Don't go back to the foreshadows. You've got the substance. You've got the God of glory who humbled himself this way to save you. Loving you. Cleansing you. Glorifying you. This is the one who's worthy. This is the one who deserves my faithfulness. Not the kingdoms of this world. Where have you been afraid of humiliation? Chasing earthly glory. Remember, he's swinging the scope and saying, oh, you, wait, you want to see glory? You've got to stoop. You've got to get small. Where are you prone to drift because you're not anchored? And where do you see that Christ is an anchor and the reason Christ is a worthy anchor because he's the one who's come to do this work and he's the only one who can do this work. He's the one we should trust. He's the one you need to trust. He's the one we're offering to our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members who don't know Christ and they're still covered in the shame of their sin and they don't know they stink. And they think they're glorious. And you and I need to love them enough to keep offering Christ and offering Christ and explaining, wait a minute, humility makes sense because your glory is going to turn on you if you keep defying the, the Lord. This is the work He's given us to do, people. Can you trust Him while you do it? Pray with me. Father, we praise You that You are so merciful and kind. We praise You for the wonders of Your ways. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your heart to humble yourself, to come into this peril, to come into this sewage where we are, to get us out. And we praise you, Lord, that there's no one who can compare with you. There's no one who's like you. There's no one who loves as well as you do. There's no one who's trustworthy as you. And I pray that you would help us to to let go of our our pursuits of worldly glory, that we would pursue you, that we would be found faithful to you, that we would be about your business, about the mission that you've come for. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Remember, I'm a visitor here. Does he nor- Drew normally do a, a, a benediction from number six? Or Oh, there we go. Ah. I was like, I didn't want to like say something and, and you have different words printed behind my head.
Uh, it really is a privilege to be here and again to encourage you as God's people. Uh, the, the imagery of the benediction is the blessing of God on you as you go out. It's the idea, it's the inversion of everything you're offered because of what Christ went through on your behalf. You're blessed because he was cursed. You're kept because he was cast away. You get it? That everything that Christ has done for you and you're trusting in him and clinging to him. Now it's everything Jesus earned on your behalf guaranteed to you as you take him at his word. So do that. Take him at his word and receive the promise of this blessing and the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.